I thought I had all these names sorted until Julian told me earlier how to pronounce it, so I'm going to completely stuff it all up. <laughs> Reading from Judges chapter 3 and starting at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rizophame, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rathaim, king of Arab, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And the, at the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the door of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. Then they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sariah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given back... Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and, ta and taking possession of the ford at the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shagamah, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel.
Thank you, Joe. Um, keep your Bibles open. Um, <laughs> that might be one of the few times I don't have to tell you to do that because it's such a weird and strange story. Um, this is always one of my favourites as a kid to read in church when the minister dragged on. It's just so weird. Um, and we're going to try and pull it apart a bit this, this morning and understand just why it's weird uh, and why it's here. Um, as you, most of you are aware, I'm, I love my fishing. Um, now, one of the reasons I love fishing, there's lots of reasons I love fishing, uh, but one of the reasons I love fishing is the challenge. Um, I like fish, I like to eat fish, but I also like just to fish for the challenge of fishing. You know, there's always something new to do, uh, a bigger fish to catch, a rarer fish to catch, a more difficult fish to catch, a fish that's bigger than the fish my mate caught. Uh, th- there's a challenge, uh, and I love that challenge. Um, one of the, the challenges that I, I love to try, uh, to try and target, is to catch tuna. Um, I don't get to do this very often, um, but I love it. I I love catching tuna, I love eating tuna, um, and I'd love to catch more tuna. But the thing is, with tuna, uh, they can be a bit hard to catch. You have to go a long way. Um, They are usually a long way out at sea. They can be quite difficult to catch, and I've gone uh, hours, in fact, whole weekends, uh, and not caught any tuna. Um, Still we try. But I felt a bit odd the other day watching uh, a fishing show on TV because uh, they were going out to target tuna. And I thought, well, this is great. I can maybe learn something. Uh, Until they announced that it was a challenge for them too and they were going out to catch tuna on $10 fishing rods that they got from Kmart. Uh, Barbie rods, actually. I didn't know you could buy a Barbie fishing rod, but you can. Now, on one hand, it was funny. Uh, It was funny watching these two quite burly grown men fishing with tiny little pink fishing rods. Uh, That is an amusing picture. But on the other hand, it was terribly frustrating and even humiliating because they caught tuna. And they caught tuna easily. Uh, It felt like they were mocking me personally. I struggle to do that with my relatively more expensive gear. Life's just not fair. Uh, That's kind of the tension that we have in this passage here. Uh, There's this, this tension between what is actually funny. I know this passage is gross, but it is funny, and it is supposed to be funny. Uh, it's weirdly graphic, but we're allowed to laugh. We're allowed to laugh as long as we don't only laugh. Because the passage gets flipped back on us as well. And we're going to see that as we work our way through it. It's not just here for our amusement, it's here to help us self-reflect. To reflect on the absurdities, the inconsistencies in our own lives. Uh, See, this passage is funny. It's funny to make us look at God and to see him. Because even here, in this dark, comic situation, God is present. And we see him saving, we see him acting, and we see him working, even in the messiness of life. And that's what we're going to see this morning we finally uh, make it to our very first hero in the book of Judges. We've seen the introductions. We've been told really how this book's going to unfold. Last week we saw that, that cycle that is going to be played out time and time again through the book. Uh, and here it is, the first example of it. We meet Othniel in verse 7. Let me just read his account again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. 
But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. It plays out as we've been warned is going to play out, doesn't it? The people have turned away from God. They've forgotten what he's done. Uh, one generation has passed since they've moved into this land, since they've taken possession of it, and already they've turned their back on him. God has given them the land to live in and now they've rejected him. They've rejected a good and holy and gracious God for the Baals and Asherahs, these brutal and vile and powerless idols. And for their unfaithfulness, for their rejection of him, God gives them over to a fearsome enemy. We, we meet this, this man, Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. It's no accident that that rhymes. We get the sense this is a nickname he's perhaps given to himself. Uh, Cushan Rishathaim means Cushan the double evil. Aram Naharaim means Aram of the double rivers. So he's Kush, uh, you know, Cushan the double evil from Aram the double rivers. It's kind of a, a pun, certainly not the name his parents gave him. But what it's saying is, this guy's a big deal. Okay, this, this guy is not from the land of Canaan. He's not a, a king or a, of a city-state or a, a nation there. He's an emperor. He's a foreign emperor of a foreign power, a powerful empire who is now influencing Israel, who has oppressed them. This is by far and away the biggest enemy, the most powerful nation that we encounter in the book of Judges and Israel is subjected to them. After eight years, they cry out. Take note of this, it's not a cry of repentance. Uh, the word is just generally a cry of anguish. So even though they're still not ready to come to him, even though they still haven't admitted they need him, God hears them and he shows mercy. And in rides our dashing hero, uh, our noble knight on his white horse, Prince Charming himself, Othniel, son of Kenaz. Uh, we know him. We, we've read of him a couple of weeks ago in, in Judges chapter 1. We've seen that he's a courageous uh, fighter, an officer in Israel's army. He's uh, taken on a city really by himself or with his select men. Uh, he's defeated. We know him as a bold and faithful and true man, a real hero. And no less is he here. Look what he does. He, he rides to war. He gathers an, an army and with apparent ease he drives out this foreign emperor. He, he defeats him and the land is free again. And the land has rest for, for 40 years, for a whole generation. I mean, how great is this story? It, it so perfectly runs through that, that, that cycle that we'd expected. You know, remember what we saw. We saw sin and then oppression and then the people cry and then God shows mercy and we get a hero they have rest. It's, it's all here, isn't it? But does it strike you just how flat this story is? I mean, it's really formulaic, isn't it? There's no detail, there's no colour. Uh, this is the greatest of judges and the greatest of victories and there's just nothing here. That is until we start to pry a little bit. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Um, you know, you find yourself 
night flicking through channels on the TV and you stumble across whatever movie is on for the umpteenth time. Uh, you don't know the movie, you haven't read the TV guide or pressed the info button on your TV. Uh, but even just from a few frames, you can kind of guess, maybe not what the movie is, but maybe you can guess who the director of the movie is. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, maybe it's a movie with lots of explosions and lots of slow-mo hero shots and you think, well, it's got to be Michael Bay. You know, Transformers director, constant explosions, it's probably him. Uh, maybe it's, you know, quite a moody feel, it's a bit abstract, there's a twist ending. Uh, well, probably it's uh, M. Night, um, and I apologise, Shamalama Ding Dong, because I can't pronounce his second name, uh, the guy who did The Sixth Sense moody and dark and with a twist. Maybe, maybe it's a bit quirky and a bit macabre and maybe it stars Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, it's probably Tim Burton. And you can kind of grab these things, can't you? you? You look at the way a story is told, you look at the way it's presented and you can get a feel for who's running this story, for who's directing it. And same here, same here in Judges. The way this story is told, the way it's presented to us, tells us exactly who it's about. I mean, we have a great hero, an impeccable hero who does marvellous things, yet there's no detail about him. Why? Well, maybe it's not about him at all. There's some clues that that would be the fact. Just, just if you've got your Bibles there, glance over the story and just look with me as I just pick out a few things. The anger of the Lord was kindled. He sold them into the hands of. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer. The spirit of the Lord was on him. The Lord gave the king into his hands. Do you see what happens when you start looking through this story? You, you, you actually see that anything that really happens in this account is all up to God. It's not this right and best man, Othniel. It's all about the right and best God. Yes, Othniel is, is his means, is his servant, but it's God who's in the driver's seat. All of the chief actions God has taken. And that's the point of the story, isn't it? Othniel is great, but no man is enough. It's God, God alone who saves. And we see why that's necessary. Um, clearly, Othniel does a great job. He conquers, he leads, he rules. They have peace for a generation. And what happens? The very last word of the account? He died. And we've read ahead, we know what happens. The cycle restarts and it's worse than before. And what we need is another hero. But we need a better hero, don't we? We need a hero that's more than, better than, greater than, even Othniel, greater than any man, in fact, who's ever lived. If even Othniel can't do it, we need someone far above him. We need a God-man. Because as this story has told us, only God can drive our salvation. And God has sent one. Here's John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. We needed better than Othniel and God has sent us better than Othniel 
He's sent us a hero like none before and none ever since. He's sent us someone who is better than, who is more than any man who has ever lived. He's sent his own son. Not to condemn as we deserved, but to save. How? Well, not by conquering the greatest empire of his time, the Roman Empire. He saved by conquering our greatest enemies, our spiritual enemies, not our physical enemies. He conquered for us sin and death in his own death for our sin, saving us from our guilt and our punishment. And in fact, he was so much better than Othniel or any other hero that although he died, he didn't stay dead. Here's how he introduces himself to his friend John in the book of Revelation. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. See, God has sent the right man for the job and the right man is no mere man. It is Jesus, the God-man, and our hope is in him, in the salvation that God has worked through him. Our hope is in him and in him alone. There is no good hoping in anyone else. There's no good hoping even in yourself because everyone else, even yourself, will let you down. I mean, we know this, don't we? I mean, how, how many times in your life have you been let down by someone? How often have your heroes turned out to be flawed? How often have you let yourself down? How often have you failed to live up to your own expectations? Neither self, no man, no hero can save us and we don't need them too. We don't even need to pretend that they might because God has sent us the perfect hero. He sent us his son who lives today as we sung before, our living hope. And he's defeated our greatest enemy and he lives today to assure our life. He is your living hope if you believe in him. Jesus is the right man the saviour, the deliverer, God's sent one. But there are other men in this passage, aren't there? Now, I don't know how you felt when we read from verse uh, the, the story of Othniel to the stories of Ehud and Shamgar. Uh, when I read it on Monday preparing for this, my head was spinning because the contrast between these two stories is wild, isn't it? It is just bizarre and it's no accident either. In the first story we have heaps of God, in the second we have almost none. Uh, in the first story we have a great man, in the second we have two very odd men. Uh, in the first we've got no details, in the second we've got way too much detail. Uh, in the first we've got this perfect clean story, in the second we've got this gritty, dirty, odd story. And that's actually the point of sticking these two together. The point is, in both of these very different stories, we still have one God at work. And let's see how he does it. Look at verse 12 to 14 with me. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. The cycle restarts. Uh, once more, Israel forget what God has just done for them. They sin, and God's punishment of them is to raise up 
uh, Eglon, king of Moab. Uh, he gathers his coalition, they move into the land, they seem to conquer the Israelites with uh, relative ease and they take the city of Palms, which we know is the city uh, of Jericho, and they, they seem to sit pretty there. You know, they're, they're in a good spot. The city of Palms indicates it's lush, uh, it's in, on the plains in the best part of the land and they occupy that place. Whereas Israel are oppressed, confined to the hills, the barren and rocky and dry hills. And it goes on like this for 18 years until God raises up his new deliverer. I just want to read his story uh, and then we'll pick out some of the details from verse 15. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting in the upper room, sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord, fallen to the floor, dead. Uh, Yes, you can laugh at this story. You're supposed to laugh at this story. It's funny, even though it is quite dark. But it's also quite subtle and I want to just tease out some of the subtleties for us. Um, we're told that Ehud is left-handed. Um, we're told he's a left-handed Benjamite, which is kind of odd because Benjamin actually means son of my right hand. Uh, left-handed son of my right hand. In fact, we're told he's the Benjamite. He's, he's the exemplary Benjamite, the left-handed son of a right hand. It kind of feels a bit negative. Um, there's also hints in the, in the text that perhaps this was a physical deformity, that perhaps there was something wrong with his right hand. Uh, it's also kind of possible that this was um, actually the result of military training, that Ehud had received uh, elite, in fact, military training. And we can kind of stick all these things together and build this picture of maybe what Ehud was like, uh, this elite, unlikely, unliked assassin. Uh, whatever he was... It works in his favour. Uh, his left-handedness al- allows him to escape attention that might have been put on others. He builds this short sword for himself. It's double-edged. It's a stabber. Sorry, it's a stabber, left hand. Uh, he's able to stick it to his right thigh because they would only check the left where you would expect a weapon to be held. Uh, and so he's able to go before the king and bring this tribute. Now we're told Eglon is a fat man. That's a bit impolite to say today, but the passage calls our attention to it. It says, in fact, he's an exceedingly fat man. Um, And even his name is really a pun. Uh, The the word Eglon sounds in Hebrew like two different words. 
It sounds like the word calf, as in bull calf, and rotund. So his name, if we stick it together, he's, he's the fat cow. <laughs> like, it, it, yes, laugh, it's a joke. It's supposed to be a joke. He's the fat cow, the fattened calf. Um, we read about his soldiers later. The NIV is a little bit sensitive. It says that his soldiers uh, were vigorous and strong. Um, the word is stout, and it's just as ambiguous then as it is today. They were, they were stout soldiers, and probably not stout-hearted, but, you know, stout, stout men. So what do we have? Well, we've got this oppressing king, this oppressing nation, sitting pretty in the, greatest, uh, the, the, the best city in the land, fattening themselves up on Israel's God-given wealth. They are stuffing their own faces, living the high life, but in actual fact, being prepared like a fat, sacrificial calf. And they meet their ending, and it is a humiliating ending. Uh, Ehud comes back to Eglon. He says, I've got a secret message for you. The word message is the word word, which is a really ambiguous word. It can be a word or it can be a thing. We know what thing Ehud has strapped you know, to his right thigh. We know what he's got for Eglon. Eglon doesn't. Eglon thinks, great, God's got a word for me. This is going to be awesome. Maybe more gold like Ehud just brought me. Let's get into privacy so none of my officials are you know, tempted to steal it. We think, you're an idiot. Who's going to be alone with their enemy? How stupid is that? What a dumb, fat cow. Eglon's a bit of a, uh, Ehud is a bit of a conspirator. He whispers again and Eglon stands, straining to hear. The fat droops away and at that moment Ehud whips out his sword, plunges it into Fatty's belly and so deep that the fat grotesquely oozes over it it says it came out his back, literally his bowels release. I don't, you, you get the picture. It's, it's not a pretty scene. It's not meant to be a pretty scene. It's pretty ugly, in fact. Ehud flees it, as you would. He locks the door behind him and goes his way. Outside, the servants are feeling a little awkward. And we get the sense that probably they actually saw Ehud leave so that they knew the king was alone by now. Uh, they notice that he, the, the door is locked behind him. They assume, well, the king's probably on his bathroom. He's taking care of business. That's what the smell suggests. And so they wait. And they wait. I mean, he's a big king. It might take a while. You know, you don't want to bust in on your king on the toilet. You can imagine how that will end up. And so they wait. And they wait. And we actually, the word is not the point of embarrassment. They wait till they were literally agonising over whether to go in or not. They decide, this is ridiculous. We have to break in, and they do. And they find King Blubber in a pile on the floor. And Ehud has made his escape. Look at verse 28. Follow me. Uh, yeah, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and taking possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Uh, we, we get this picture that strong and, and bold Moab is in utter confusion so that Israel can sweep down out of the hills, take the fords of the Jordan and, and defeat the fleeing Moabite army. All these stout soldiers are utterly wiped out and Israel has peace for 80 years. 
for two whole generations. What a comprehensive victory it is. And at the end of the story, you're supposed to smile and chuckle. You know, the fattened calf got what he deserved. The good guys win again. What a lovely story. I don't know how they do it nowadays, um, but when I was at school, at the end of the year, you would get your school report uh, and you would get your school report in an unsealed envelope so that you could open it and see how you'd done, uh, read you know, the marks that you've got. What do you do when you do that in a classroom of students? Well, you start comparing, don't you? Uh, and, of course, you start competing. Uh, who got the best marks? Uh, I remember particularly one year in Year 9... Uh, there was a guy in our class who opened his report and he was over the moon because the maths mark that he had got was astonishing. Like, he wasn't the brightest guy um, and maths was not his forte, but he'd gotten an A. He'd gotten an A and he was stoked. He, he didn't he let us know <laughs> all he was talking about. And especially, especially when he found out that the smartest guy in the class, the class nerd, had also gotten an A. They were together, they were on the same mark. What an amazing thing. But he shut up, though, when someone else read his report uh, and pointed out that the A that he thought he'd got for maths was actually for PE uh, and his maths mark was a very different story. <laughs> it was a bit humiliating. Joke's on him. And so it is here. The joke's on Israel. The joke's on the reader reading this story. Yes, laugh at the Moabites, laugh at this fat, foolish king and their, their stupid ways, but don't forget, don't forget they were in charge over you, remember? Don't forget they were dominating you. This fat cow was over you. You were actually in a far bigger mess than they were. You're the ones who needed a left-handed assassin to rescue you from this bloated whale of a king. And just in case we thought, well, that's, that's a bit of a harsh reading of this story, the next story actually doubles down on it, doesn't it? Look at verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Uh, that name is not an Israelite name. Shamgar is not one of Israel, you know, their, their latest hero to be raised up amongst them. He's a foreigner. Israel needed a foreigner to save them. And look how he does it. Well, he kills 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. I mean, Israel as a nation couldn't seem to liberate themselves. This guy does it single-handedly with a farm implement. What a mess of a nation. What a walking disaster. How hopeless they were. What a total mess. And yet what's happened? God stepped in, hasn't he? Just remember what's, what we've read just before. Remember, God raised up Ehud. This terribly unlikely man was actually his servant. Uh, it was the Lord, as Ehud announced, who gave Moab, Moab into, his, into their hands. Sure, he wasn't mentioned in the details, but it doesn't mean he wasn't at work there. God is in here directing this story just as much as he was in Othniel's story. God is here rolling up his sleeves, getting his hands dirty in this most gritty of ways. God is here in this mess. I mean, isn't that an insight for our time? What a, what a message. We, we have messy lives. We live in the messiest of times. And that is precisely the time where God works. 
That is precisely the situation where God is present, rolling up his sleeves, getting his hands dirty. How do we know he does that? Because he's done it already for us in the ultimate way. Remember how he described the servant he was going to send to save his people, the ultimate servant. This is the words he used from Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And an unlikely, uh, unlovable servant, a messy servant, working in messy ways for messy people because this is what he does as we read on. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows and by his wounds we are healed. God has shown how willing, just how willing he is to work in messy ways for messy people to save. He is not a God who steps back and says, you guys are too messed up, I'm not having a bar of that. He is a God who steps in, who sends his son, who rolls up his sleeves to go so far into our messiness, actually to bear it all on himself, to take it to his cross and kill it forever so that we can be clean and made new. That is how far God has gone. That is how far he does go for his people. I think sometimes, though, we would prefer it if God would actually just choose the, 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 the neat, wouldn't we? If God would choose to work in the tidy situations, the nice situations. I mean, it, it would be more pleasant, wouldn't it? It would certainly be easier. But would it ever happen? Are we ever going to find ourselves in a situation that's neat and tidy enough that, that we can say, yes, God, it's time you can come and help us now, this is going to be good? It's not going to happen, is it? Because we're broken people. We're messy people. We make mistakes all the time. If we're going to wait for a day in which we're neat enough for God to to, to, step into our lives and work in them, it's never going to happen. He never will. But God doesn't wait for that time. He doesn't wait until your life is clean enough that you know, he can step in without too much cost to himself, that he can work without fuss. No, what God does is he takes the first step. He steps in when you're at your lowest point. And he does the work for you. How freeing that is. God, God works in mess. That means he can work in me because, look, there's plenty of mess in my life. That means he can work in us because, let's face it, we're a pretty messy bunch of people. Each of us have a part in that. And yet God works. Not condoning, not approving our mess, but working in us and working through us and and working with us, even alongside us, for his plan and to to grow his kingdom, to make right his people. Um, Here's those, those famous words from Romans 8 verse 28. In all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you hear that? His, his purpose. His purpose is to make his people holy, that is to make his people right and clean. His purpose is to work out his plan of salvation through his people, to bring life through Jesus to many. And he does that. 
and he does it even in our lowest points, even in our hardest times, even in and amongst our mess, in all things. My life is messy, but God works there. Your life is messy, but God does his work there. Our church is messy, and yet God works through us. Our world is messy, and God is still just as active there as he has always been. He is willing to go there. He is willing to work out his plan. And he's proven that willingness in Jesus. God has given us his best and he works in our worst. That's essentially the story of these two passages together. God has given us the best deliverer, Jesus, who lives forever. God works in our worst, entering our mess, rolling up his sleeves, working amongst us and in us. And through us. What a God we have. What a God we have. Gracious enough to come near us in our messy way. Great enough to rescue us from them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness is beyond compare. You have rescued messy people like us. For you have sent your Son. You've not abandoned us. You've given us life and hope in him. Father, help us to trust you. We, you know, we prefer to hide our mess. We prefer to pretend it doesn't exist and pretend we could make ourselves right enough for you to work. Help us to trust you and be vulnerable to you. Confess and open ourselves to your work in our life, knowing that you will, in all things, work out your perfect purpose in us in us do it we pray do it powerfully do it wonderfully change us use us and work out your plan of salvation for many in jesus through us even in this time we pray amen